The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? So, Lloyd, today we are talking with Michelle Richardson, and we're going to be talking about all sorts of interesting things that are happening in Congress and in Washington, D.C. And so let me tell you a little bit of our, our wonderful guest. Michelle Richardson is the director of Data Privacy Project, where she leads CDT's efforts to create user-centered internet. Her team engages companies and government officials to create policies, technical solutions that protect individual privacy, power users, and advance social justice. Michelle has testified before Congress. She's advised government agencies and frequently appears in national press, such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, NPR, and Politico. She's recognized by the Hill as one of the most influential nonprofits. Well, the Center for uh, Democracy and Technology is recognized as one of the most influential nonprofit lobbyists in Washington, D.C., and she has left, she has left right coalitions to defend privacy in the face of ever-expanding government authorities. Before joining CT in 2017, Michelle led the American Civil Liberties Union's preeminent legislative campaigns against overreaching surveillance programs for 10 years. She also served as a Democratic consul for the House Judiciary Committee, where she worked on a range of anti-terrorism laws and policies. She received her BA from the University of Colorado and her JD from American University Washington College of Law. She currently serves as a senior Senior fellow at George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. So thank you for joining us this morning, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Well, we've had the Center for Democracy and Technology on our show before, and we're so thrilled to have you and tell us about what's going on in Washington. So online privacy debates seem to come and go every few years. What's different about it this time? Well, we are facing two new things. Um, one is that people are understanding technology more and more. And this is partly because people are just becoming native users of technology, but also because there's now more research and investigation into how all of the tools are used. So we're seeing wonderful exposés from the media or academic institutions that really explain to people in brass tacks about how their data is collected and used. So for example, there was a recent article in the New York Times about how apps that you put on your phone will 
surreptitiously collect your location information mm. and then use it or sell it for something wholly unrelated to what you actually signed up for. And so those sort of examples are really starting to resonate with people. Right. But on the flip side, you know, we have policy people who are really trying to advance sort of legislative solutions. And that's what we've seen out where you are in California in the passage last year of the CCPA, uh, an overarching privacy law that would fill all of the gap. You know, we have the sectoral approach been around for decades. It now covers only a tiny fraction of the information that is available about us. So we need something that is going to cover everything else, all, all the intimate information that reflects where we go, who we know, what we do, you know, our faith, our political affiliation, and make sure that less information is collected and used about us in ways that can harm us. Well, you know what I've noticed, you know, like you said, it's been pretty much state by state has been doing this and we have this kind of patchwork of different privacy laws. But what has happened, at least as I've been in the field, is that when it gets to um, like California law has, California has kind of led the way in many, many privacy laws. And when the feds take over and try and put a law together, it seems to water a lot of this down so that it takes away some of the rights that consumers have gotten. And so I'm just wondering what you think about that. That is definitely a risk here with the federal government getting involved. And part of why it is politically viable this year at the federal level is because the companies have come to the table. They're asked Congress, preempt state law, give them one centralized federal standard as opposed to patchwork, right? Right, right. Um, have had a lot of members here, though, be very clear that while they would consider preemption of the state laws, only be in return for incredibly meaningful and substantive privacy protection. So this is going to be something we're going to have to watch throughout the year. Um, right. And if it takes longer, the next two, three, four, five years, um, to make sure that the right balance is wrong. Um, because really, at the same time, you know, we'll work on these federal laws, but we'll also encourage the states to keep going, right? Yeah. This may be a several-year project here in D.C. And in the meantime, we just can't wait to need states to go ahead and act and start protect data. Right, right. And th- the crazy thing is, is that with technology changing and everything changing, <laughs> can we ever keep up, right? Can we ever keep up to have that federal legislation that would be all-encompassing? Right. Well, here's the thing, right? Maybe we never keep up, but we can at least choose not to be 30 years out of date, right? right? <laughs> and um, I think we need to relieve ourselves of the pressure that we will get this 100% accurate for 100% of the data collectors and 100% of the data type on the first try. I think we need something that's meaningful. It's going to last 10 years and have a workable enforcement structure. Um, you know, it's just good governance, right? To yeah. revisit a law as facts change and can't um, basically stand still in this moment forever legally. It's not working. The rest of the world and, you know, California, good example, is moving on without us. The rest of us here in D need to get with the program. Right, right. Well, they're so lucky that they have you. I mean, you came from, you know, the American Civil Liberties Union. So you, you have kind of like this proactive approach, which hopefully now you can negotiate with everybody over there too, <laughs> to, uh, to hear you. We are going to try, and it is very complicated, both on the substance, but on the politics. Yeah. And um, Congress is really just getting started. So there's a lot of work happening behind the scenes, right? So um, especially the committees and the members who are especially important to the debate have been meeting with um, companies, nonprofits, and academics the last six months. And I think in the next month or two, we will see more federal bills introduced by the type of members who are likely to set the tone of the debate. And um, it's going to be definitely a protracted fight throughout the year. But it's still important, even if we don't get a bill to the president's desk. You know, if we've learned anything from Cal- 
California is whoever acts first to get set the parameters of the entire debate, right? Yeah. And so whatever we do this year is going to be the jumping off point for the next time we revisit it. Yeah. So we are going to just go as hard and fast as we can for the next year and see if we can get federal privacy legislation passed. Yeah. Now, privacy is is really a nonpartisan or a bipartisan issue, you know? It, it isn't, uh, you know, some, it's not the kind of hot thing that, uh, you know, that people fight about um, with regard to, let's say, abortion rights or whatever else there is. This is something that, that I know that is bipartisan. So what is the mood like in Washington when it comes to privacy? Do you have both sides of the aisle kind of, you know, understanding that? Um, yeah. So I would say both sides of the aisle agree there's a problem, but there is not agreement on how to fix it. And that is going to be the hard part, right? And we're seeing two approaches here, um, one much more important than the other. Um, one is that we have a user problem, right? And if we just educate users more and allow them to make better decisions, um, we've solved the current moment we're in. Um, but the other approach is to say, no, we have a company problem, a, you know, nonprofit, um, telecom, anybody who's collecting and using data, we need to expect more from them because privacy self-management is never going to work. Um, there are too many devices and apps. They have their own vendors, third-party agreements. There's just no way to track, make meaningful decisions on all the data that's out about you. But instead, we need to create a baseline, you know, your digital civil right and the treatment you can expect from all companies that you just simply cannot find a way. Right, right. It's And, you know, there's so much that we don't understand about technology. You know, you probably understand more than I do, and I understand more than a lot of other people. So if you're talking about the ordinary user, you know, they they need something that's really user-friendly that they can understand. You know, yes, I want to share or no, I don't. Or, you know, they, they don't even understand the privacy policies, let alone the technology. So I think that's the challenging. Yes, of course, people are careful and they be uh, understanding of what they're doing. But uh, I, I think it's kind of a, a double-edged sword, right? Both side, both the companies have to make it easy and consumers have to be somewhat savvy, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, I think we just need to make sure we proceed from understanding that these devices, services, are just not optional, right? So if we are stuck in the debate of, if you don't like it, just don't use it, <laughs> yeah. that's not 2019, right? You right. know, you're going right. to, we're very close to a future where you won't be able to buy a car that's not connected. Right. You know, all our, our children will do all of their homework on a Chromebook in the public school, right? Um, or could you even imagine going to your boss saying, you know what, I'm not going to use email or the internet to do my job. You know, there's just no meaningful way to say no and participate in modern society. And you shouldn't have to, right? Uh, if we are told there is so much promise potential, we should all benefit from it and not because we have exchanged our privacy. Right. I mean, even me, I was saying that I had to go to the orthopod today. And before I could go, I had to get into their portal and fill out all these forms. And we had trouble getting in and, and we're pretty techy here, you know, and there was some kind of glitch that they were having. So even to go to the doctor, you <laughs> you have to be able to use the technology. And if you can't, then it's going to be a problem because people are going to expect it. Right? That's right. And I think this is going to become more and more common. And so some of these services um, that we will provide deeper options for citizens or people who are not familiar with technology, but I think the very near future, those won't be options anymore. And um, we'll have to be technology to do very basic everyday tasks that are required for a normal person to live their life. Yeah. So how is, um, is there any kind of tech lash that we're seeing as, you know, in resistance to, let's say, anything to do with the Russian election interference? you know, harassment online and more. I mean, what's going on with that whole mood over there? It's got to be a very crazy time. Um, it definitely is. And we are seeing that a lot of these issues are being combined, people's minds, right? And it's changing their overall view. Um, and they're not always able to 
disentangle all these different ideas and laws and responsibilities. So what we are seeing here is, you know, when a congressional hearing comes up and it may have a topic of privacy, we are often hearing things about competition or election interference, um, content moderation, safety, all these issues, um, and terrorism investigations being brought up at the same time. Um, it does make it more complicated. Um, each one of those issues is incredibly hard to handle. So um, we are hoping, though, that as the privacy debate develop, develops this year, um, it does long by itself. So we can focus on these incredibly hard questions we need to answer in the privacy space. Yeah. Is there like a privacy committee, a separate privacy committee that handles these kinds of things or privacy and technology committee? And if there is, like who's in, who's the chair of Is there one in the Senate and one in the House or what, what what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, so if it's a law that is um, targeted at privacy in general and not yeah. a very specific um, sector like banking, right, or health, um, it's going to go to the Commerce Committees. There's one in the House and the Senate. Um, they have large jurisdiction, right? And this is also part of the issue is that the people responsible for privacy have other responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in the House, same committee deals with health care. So if health care becomes, you know, a, a very pressing issue this year and next year, the same folks will have to put their attention there. Mm-hmm. Um, they have subcommittees that they sometimes delegate their work to, um, smaller group specialize certain issues, and they usually have a technology committee, but they also have a consumer protection subcommittee. So it'll be one or either or both um, of those subcommittees who will especially be leading way on this. And it will be have to be a mix of Republicans and Democrats, and we have divided government in our Congress right now. Right. And it's just so hard to pass a law, right? Um, it's incredibly difficult. No party has 60 votes at this point to get a bill through the Senate, so there will be some negotiation, although it's not clear yet um, really what framework we'll be using or the full list of topics that we'll be debating here. Well, hopefully they'll at least have hearings to have, you know, this debated, and they'll, they're going to find out what's going on in all these different states, and obviously they're going to look at what's going on with the California Consumer Privacy Act, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> and see what's going on, and uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a crazy time for them at this point. So what do you think really needs to happen for a federal privacy law to enact? Yeah, I mean, there has to be some kind of a collaboration, right? What else? Right. And um, I think we would look to something like um, breach notification, right? Um, I think it was California who passed the first one um, yep. 15 years ago. Right. And it took 15 years for the, so we got to the last date to pass their law last year, right? And part of the delay and why they never got a federal law passed is because of um, disagreement within industry. Right. Um, so I really think, you know, if, if industry really wants a federal bill, the honest is going to be on them to make meaningful compromise so you get something, especially the House. Um, and that is going to take a lot of work, and people are certainly talking about it now, but it's, it's going to have to be meaningful. This is not the type of issue that can be snuck into a bill or people will compromise and come back later. It is really sort of unprecedented, right? And the first time that we do this, really going to set the tone for how we data management for many years to come. Right, right. And the security breach notification, you know, as you said, we were one of the, we were the first state to do this, and then all these other states, some of them are more stringent, some of less stringent. So, you know, it would be helpful. I don't think it'll happen. If they came up to the bar of the most stringent, then everybody else could, you know, follow through. But I, I don't see that happening with, um, with all the lobbyists there. Do you? 
Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, um, you know, most of the conversations we've been a part of have said, you know, they're just going to let that issue go. It's intractable. There are now 50 state laws, and um, now's the time to focus on privacy per se and not try to retread that debate. So it's very likely that a privacy bill um, not include breach notification. That said, it probably will include affirmative security requirements. So sort of modeled after both California and Europe, um, it will require data holders to take reasonable efforts to share the data um, relative to their size, sophistication, and the type of data that they're collecting. Right. So um, what are the most important issues to address? You know, we've got some harder questions in answering about a federal privacy. What do you think are going to be the most important issues that the Center for Democracy and Technology are going to push on? Um, so our, our goal here is to redistribute responsibility to make sure that um, entities that collect and process all this data treat it fairly. And so we see the solution being, you know, through companies, through not-for-profits, or anybody who's collecting this data. And um, for us, there's a couple of points that should be in there. Um, one, we need to address discrimination directly. Um, it is one of the most offensive ways data can be used, something that we need through a number of different channels and platforms. And I don't mean price discrimination, which is sometimes, you know, an issue, but um, but actual race, gender, class discrimination um, in ways that deny people opportunities or discriminate against them in housing, education, employment, and other places. So it's very illegal already, right? But the internet is making it harder to enforce some of these laws. And so we really need to make sure that this effort gets into that type of collection, use, and decision-making. Okay, so um, give some examples so that my audience understands how that issue really relates to discrimination, race, and gender, et cetera. Yeah. So, for example, um, recently a case was filed against Facebook um, after it was found that their platform allowed advertisers to sort of select the race and gender and mm-hmm. parental status of people who see their ads. Um, and in the case of housing, that's legal. So um, that is a type of situation where we need to be much more careful because it has real world effects on people's lives. Um, you know, these are high stakes decisions that are being made about you. Um, it could be everything from, you know, what your mortgage rate turns out to be or whether you get a mortgage at all, right? You know, whether you get an ad to go to one university over another, the types of things that can change the course of a life. And that needs to be central to what we are doing here, right? Privacy is not just about do we collect it or not, about how do we want you to have it. Right. Um, and, you know, and that's a, that leads to sort of the second thing that we hope the bill um, does. We hope that it discourages or prohibits at least a small list of secondary uses. Um, we see so often that where it goes astray and what serves people is when the information is given to someone else for another purpose. And people, right, and this is where we just need to get over terms of service and do purpose alignment. People understand that when they sign up for Google Map, they are sharing the location information, right? And, uh, you know, it's central to the actual service that you're signing up for and making it work right. There's no no way, though, for a normal person to understand that their flashlight app, and that was an actual case for the FTZ, was going to collect their location information and then turn around and sell it, right? right. There's literally right. no reason for the flashlight app to have it, and it was just so they can sell it. So um, that's what we would like to see is that purpose alignment, because we think this is a way to fulfill people's expectations um, in a meaningful way. And it doesn't have to be overall data, but we would want to see it on most high-stakes data and data processing activities. So the use of biometric to identify people, um, precise 
geolocation information that has been completely anonymized, children's information, health information, audio and visual recording. Um, some of the things that we've seen that when they've been repurposed, it has been a complete surprise and often an unfair one. Right, right. You know, um, and something will pop up on my iPhone and say, you know, this app wants your location. Can you leave it on all the time? And I'm going, no, you know, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Only when I'm using it. And some of them want my location and there's no reason. I mean, I understand if I want to use my GPS, they have to know my location or I'm not going to get anywhere, right? So that makes right. sense to me. But if I'm using like, um, you know, some some other kind of app that has nothing to do with telling me where I'm going to go or a restaurant that I need, what do I need to give them my location for? You know, right. I, I don't understand that. And I think people don't always recognize the ramifications of these things. They just say, okay, you know, and then they just don't know what could possibly happen, like what you're talking about. So that, you know, even if a, a user knows yes or no, yes, I'll give you my location or not, the the, cr- the problem is, is they don't know the secondary use or how it's to hurt them. And that's the part that I don't think is being explained to them, right? Right, right. And um, and there's no meaning way to understand how that information can be used in just a year from now, right? Much yeah. less, much further down the road. And I think that was one of the shocking things um, after some of these companies gave us our right to sort of access what they were holding on us, that, you know, people were finding it would go back 10 years, yeah. right? I mean, 10 years ago, how would you know that what you put in Google would be so sensitive and it would be used such important ways, right? Yeah. So um, there's just no way for the average person to foresee how the data is used or make a meaningful decision, right, about it. Mm-hmm. Even if you feel like you're making an informed decision today, it's different in the very near future that um, oh, it's impossible for privacy self-management work. Right. And even if you have a privacy policy, let's say I read a privacy policy today and they say that it may change in the future, how do I know to go back and look at the changes that they've made? So if they right. say, okay, well, you can put a privacy policy and stick your privacy policy up to date, how many times will you go back there? And and you right. maybe you haven't used it in, in six months. And then you go back and you don't bother to read the privacy policy because you thought, well, I read it before, or maybe you didn't even read it before because <laughs> you didn't understand it. So yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very challenging situation. Let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about um, the gen- how, you know, how are companies responding to the uh, the GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation in European Union, et cetera, and, um, and the California Consumer Privacy Act? How is that influencing what might happen in, in Washington? Well, um, I would say California is even more influential than Europe right now. And by acting first, California got to set a lot of the terms of debate. So a lot of what we see there is um, going, would make it into federal legislation in one form or another. So, for example, there are um, access, correction, deletion rights, California. Those are things that are likely to end up in a federal law um, mm-hmm. to give people some more control over right. data that they share with some of these entities. So um, it has definitely influenced the debate. I think we are still looking for some good unbiased data to come out of the EU, though. Um, their law passed last May, or I'm sorry, went into effect last May. Mm-hmm. So it's relatively new, but they move much faster over there. They don't spend years and years investigating and, you know, behind yeah. closed doors negotiations. They're just making rulings. But um, hopefully we will get more information this year about the effects that some of these policies have had. Um, you know, I think one of the things we have been critical about California or Europe is there are a lot of ways to just 
consent out of something, right? Is sort of check this box, you waive your right. And the most important thing to do during this process is define those rights that you just can't find a way, right? That's what makes them right. 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 So you have written some legislation. Is that on your website, your privacy legislation? It is. It's at um, www.vt.org. And, um, you know, last year we sat down with dozens of companies, nonprofits and academics, and we started like everybody else talking about principles. And it became very clear very quickly that we all had different meanings when we say privacy. And so we needed to actually write it out. And, um, you know, the types of questions we were getting from the Hill, you know, when they say, say you don't like notice and consent, want more meaningful limitations on data collection and use, what does it look like? The only solution was to put pen to paper and write our own bill. So that's what we did. We made it public. We didn't look for a sponsor and we were inviting state legislatures, um, folks here in D.C. to borrow from the parts they like and um, want to make it a resource of the right way to deal with some of these issues. And it covers um, the two issues I talked about before, so discrimination and secondary uses. We think those are some of novel approaches that we don't see in any other bills. But it also has data security requirements, transparency, and um, individual rights, so the access, correction, deletion, portability. Uh, We do recommend folks take a look at it because we spent a lot of time making sure that it covered the right information, that any exceptions were very, very narrowly tailored and clear and um, would be workable for a lot of different entities that had a different type of information or different sizes, um, have different business models. So um, we are looking forward to it contributing to whatever the next step in the debate is here and hope that it does um, influence some of the decisions that we'll be making here in D.C. Well, you know what I love? I love the fact you're bringing industry together yourself instead of making it real political. Well, I'm sure it is political, but I mean, your your focus is on really looking at what, what's needed in privacy and who best would know but CDT and, and you who's been involved in American Civil Liberties Union and involved in all of this privacy legislation. So it seems to me that by you pulling together industry, and are you also pulling together like the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse and Epic and some of the other uh, organizations that are really centered on privacy? Um, many of those groups did see a draft as we were working on it, um, and some did submit comments, and we found that whether it was groups who are maybe more liberal than we are or companies who were really not happy with the approach we were taking because they thought it would cut into their business model, right. the feedback was useful to such a complicated area that even if you can articulate and get agreement on what you want to do, doing it without all of these cascading effects that you didn't attend, you know, is really hard. So we found that um, people from all different types of organizations, companies were really instructive in helping us think through how it would work and right. getting it to a place of where it's at least close to really how we think something could meaningfully work. Yeah, yeah. And then, it, you know, if you get some consensus before you give it to the legislature, you know, <laughs> maybe something can get done because they surely can't get things done and they have to look to all of you anyway, right? Because the, the, the senators and the Congress people, they don't, they don't understand the stuff. They have to yeah. be educated by you guys anyway. So it well, makes sense say, yeah. to make your we, own bill. <laughs> and we put this out in our own name. We realized that this, this is, um, type of thing has something that everybody likes and everybody hates, right? right? And that it was more important to get it out early enough to influence the bills that are being written right now. Right. right. This is happening right now. Um, so I think consensus has yet to be formed um, on not just the detail, but the overall approach and how much we are going to leave in the notice and consent model, which is really just user self-management and how much we are going to be able to put in the bucket of corporate responsibility and better data practices that don't harm people. Right. So thank 
thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Privacy Piracy, and you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. And I want to tell you about a wonderful nonprofit, the Identity Theft Resource Center. That's IDTheftCenter.org. The ITRC, the Identity Theft Resource Center, is a nonprofit organization established to support victims of identity theft in resolving their cases and to broaden public education and awareness and the understanding of this dreadful identity theft. Also, data breaches, cybersecurity, scams, frauds, and other privacy issues. The ITRC provides education to consumers, corporations, government agencies, and other organizations on best practices for fraud and identity theft protection and detection and reduction and mitigation. So if you're concerned about identity theft, visit idtheftcenter.org.